0: Alrighty, Ezra 4, 1 through 5. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build because, like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The word of the Lord.
1: Are you all impressed with how well she said (laughs) Esarhaddon? She didn't fall into my trap. That's why I asked her to read this passage. Good to see you all this morning. I am really pleased to be here with you. Um, My name is Brody. I am filling in for Pastor Chris while he's gone on summer sabbatical. Um, And we are continuing in our summer series on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, And if you haven't been here for the series, that's okay. I'll get you up to speed later on. But before we get into the text, I want you to think about your first enemy. Think back to your early childhood. Maybe there was a preschool bully who threw sand at you. Maybe that first dentist appointment was the birth of a lifelong grudge. Um, Or maybe, you know, one day your parents sat you down to tell you that they were going to have another baby. Probably because you weren't good enough and you weren't what they were hoping you would be. And so then that became your first enemy. (laughs) First and last enemy. (laughs) Lifelong. Well, my first enemy was, uh, without a doubt, plankton. Um... I think we have a slide, yep. Plankton, uh, for those of you who don't know, is the uh, the evil villain of SpongeBob. And I really, really didn't want Plankton to get the secret formula for Krabby Patties. Um, I remember being in elementary school and just like sitting in class worrying that Plankton would one day get the secret formula and what it might mean for this beautiful local restaurant of the Krusty Krab. Um, But now, looking back, I wonder if, like, actually the competition would have been good for local consumers of Bikini Bottom. Um, The Krusty Krab had really cornered the market, and I don't know if they had enough, like, competitive pressure to keep their their game going. But Plankton was trying to violate intellectual property law, and eight-year-old me would not have it. (laughs) It Yeah, this is clearly still very firm in my mind. But I want you to think of that first enemy, uh, not to bring back old painful memories, but just to acknowledge that you can't live on this planet for very long without uh, acquiring some enemies. Even if it's just a mosquito, simply doing what mosquitoes need to do to survive, you will come across some creature, person, or group whose interests directly oppose yours, and who, if, if they get what they're after, then it will threaten your conditions of life. In our time together this morning, I want to draw from this text in Ezra Nehemiah and from other passages across Scripture the ways that we can live in the love of Christ and acknowledge, name, and react to enemies. Um, at this point in the story of Ezra Nehemiah, just to sketch a little bit of where we've been, um, the exiles living in Babylon have been sent out of Babylon by King Cyrus of Persia. Babylon fell to the Persian Empire. So then the Persian Empire had a different policy regarding these exiles. So instead of keeping them in Babylon, they get booted back out to Israel. And they are now building the city that was destroyed in the Babylonian takeover. Um, And so uh, last week, Sabrina Chan led us in this reflection on what it means to have, that the Israelites built the foundation of the new temple so now, at this point in the story, we have our first major case of conflict and opposition. It wouldn't be a good story without a little bit of conflict and opposition. right? If they just build a temple and worship and everything's great, then this story probably wouldn't have ended up in, in the, the narrative of Scripture. So we have a little bit of conflict. And um, if you take the time to read these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, full through... You'll notice that um, enemies, relating to enemies, and dealing with opposition is an unavoidable theme throughout these books. Um, and, and I just want to pause here and think about enemies because it's really strange as Christians to prepare for enemies and to make a plan for dealing with enemies. I think the impression that we get uh, from cr- Christian culture and language is that we just shouldn't have enemies, right? Christians don't have enemies, it doesn't feel Christianly to acknowledge that you have enemies. And when we do find ourselves with enemies, we kind of usually think of it as some moral failure, something that we've done wrong, that we're not able to just forgive and forget, that we're not able to just lay aside our opposition. Um, And so whenever we encounter enemies, it sometimes feels like there's not um, a lot of um, acknowledgement for how to address that relationship. So this is not the last time in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that that the Israelites will encounter some enemies. There will be several more throughout actually decades of rebuilding the city of God. They're going to be constantly in, um, in opposition and enmity with other groups. And all of these enemies will in some shape or form threaten the process of building the physical and the spiritual structure of the holy city. Sometimes the Israelites will respond to these enemies in healthy ways that reflect the character of God, and other times they will respond in really unhealthy ways that are asynchronous with the very kingdom they're trying to build. The engagement of an enemy, when we pair it with Christ's instructions on living a life with enemies, will give us an opportunity to consider what an enemy is and how do we respond when we find enemies. In this passage in Ezra 4, the Israelites find themselves an enemy, and it's not exactly clear why. Why do they end up in opposition to this group? All right, This group of people approaches the Israelites, they're building the temple, and they say, hey, is this a temple for God? We love God. Team God, let's help you build it. And they respond really harshly, saying, you will have no part with us in building the temple. And this just seems really jarring and strange and Scholars have debated what to do about this, um, but there's a prominent Old Testament scholar named Christopher Wright who notes that, like, by all accounts, this seems like a genuine offer to help. This, seem, this doesn't seem like any kind of deception or trickery. Like it, it seems like this group of people genuinely approached the Israelites and said, we worship your God too. Can we, out of religious solidarity, help you build the temple? So then why this harsh rejection And why, after the rejection, did these enemies go so far out of their way to interfere with Israel's plans to build the temple? Like there's two sides of like really harsh opposition that don't really make sense on a first reading. When you peel back the layers of the context at hand and a little bit of the story behind the story, there's some clues that start to emerge. So, first of all, who are these enemies? Well, it's a mixed group of people. Some of them are Assyrians who um, were brought into the area by force that King Esarhaddon had brought us here. That, that's labeling the fact that they had lived in another city, but then these empires who were moving people around, they had gotten moved, displaced, just like the Israelites had gotten displaced in Babylon. So some of them had been brought into the area by force, and they settled into Israelite worship and Israelite customs. Others are people in the land who are Israelites who never left During the exile of Assyria and Babylon, not everybody was forced to leave. So some of these groups have been here for 150 years during the entire Israelite exile. And um, for whatever reason, they got left behind. So they've stuck around. They've kind of lived in the remnants of the Israelite city that was cities that were destroyed under Assyria and Babylon, and they've continued to worship Yahweh. And this divergence of one group displaced and carried away um, from Judah to Babylon, and another group staying left behind in the charred remains of an unrecognizable home, that divergence might help explain the tension that's grown between these two enemies. So let's look first at the exiled group, the Israelites who were picked up and carried off into Babylon. These are our protagonists through the series. This is the group of people that we're going to follow this whole time. And when the prophets were warning them about the coming rule of Assyria and Babylon, the prophets urged the Israelites to turn aside from the idols that they had been worshiping and to worship God with a single heart. Doing so would fulfill their side of the covenant that that God made with Israel, and then God would continue to fill God's side of the covenant, protecting them from, from the raging empires all around. But they didn't withdraw from that idol worship and they experienced the deepest generational tragedy and trauma that their people had ever experienced since they escaped slavery in Egypt. So coming into this new land and getting a little bit of a new beginning, there was absolutely no way that they were going anywhere near an idol. They had deep scars around idol worship. The building of the temple was a fresh start, and they did not want to make the same mistakes as last time. So that's what's underneath this for the Israelites. But what about the other people, these enemies, the folks who stayed behind? What's underneath this for them? Well, some scholars suggest that since these enemies never exiled, they continued to worship Yahweh all this time. They were also worshiping idols that we had talked about earlier. And so they were worshiping Yahweh and they are worshiping idols at the same time. And as these groups, these other groups, From Assyria get moved in, you know, they're starting to intermarry, they're starting to culturally mix. And um, so idol worship, along with Yahweh worship, starts to become a normal pattern of life for them. Um, And after all that they had experienced, their cities being burned, their families and friends being exiled, this form of worship had been the only thing that they could hang on to, the only assurance that they had. So this group of people... Um, they were intent on maintaining the, the some semblance of religious engagement that they'd had from the beginning. And, like, little sidebar, this group of people who had stayed behind and, and continued worshiping Yahweh while also worshiping idols, this becomes the Samaritans. So in the New Testament, when you read about Samaritans, there's clearly this tension between the Israelites, the Jews, and the Samaritans, and it doesn't always make sense, but this is where it started hundreds of years before when they had this opposition over the, the temple. So this group of people learned how to survive in a land that was unrecognizable under the fist of empire. They had formed practices of worship that had really just held them together all of these years. So in comes this band of returning exiles. It's been generations since these two groups have interacted with each other, the exiles start building a new temple. And I wonder if this group that remained, I wonder if they're thinking, what's our place in this temple? What's our place in the the life of this new city? Do we have a place here? Do we belong here? Or are we going to be left behind again? So that's what's underneath this. One group is petrified of, of neglecting the covenant and experiencing the trauma of exile again. Another group is petrified of feeling abandoned by God into the hands of empire and being left behind. So here here we get some insight into what exactly an enemy is. An enemy is any person or group who, if their interests are met, poses a threat to you and your interests. In this scenario, it's the interests of the Israelite to worship God free from idolatry, and it's the interests of the enemies to share in the temple worship without abandoning their religious practices and the religious practices of their families. And so with these interests in place, the tension doesn't really boil up until, until there's a decision. And the decision is that this temple will have no idol worship. There's no tolerance for um, mixing idol worship and the worship of God. And let me be clear, that's a good decision. That's an important decision, and that's a right decision. But it's a decision that sparks an enemy. Human enemies are not enemies by nature. They're not evil to their very core. Enemies become enemies because of a decision. Here in Durham, the Walltown Community Association and the Northwood Investors They lived in complete ignorance of one another, neither friends nor enemies, until their interests clashed in a critical decision. The Walltown community's interest was to have a healthy and affordable community. Northwood's interest was to build wealth through real estate development. And in 2020, when Northwood investors made the decision to redevelop the Northgate and Walltown areas, pricing out the residents who lived there, they became enemies. And as Christians, we are not showing love by shying away from the fact that we have enemies, real human enemies with names and Twitter accounts. When Northwood investors submitted a plan that was harmful to a low-income community, they became that community's enemy And as people who believe that Jesus loves the lowly and the left behind and the poor, they became our enemy too. We can add any number of modern day examples like this of people, real people, whose interests and decisions oppose the work of the justice in building the city of God. But we have to recognize as we engage with these real life, flesh and blood, human enemies, that these are not enemies by nature Their being, their essence, is good. They're made in the image of God, and they're restored by the redeeming work of Christ. Part of the mistakes of our protagonists in the book of Ezra is that they saw these enemies as enemies to their very core, not human beings made by God who God loves, caught up in the pain and the sin and the self-interest that's swirling around the world. Last week, a pastor and scholar named Esau McCulley, he published an article in the New York Times um, on, on what people mean when they talk about mass shooters as evil. And uh, this was a really insightful, thoughtful reflection as, as the nation sort of enters again this debate about gun legislation. and um, th- And thinking about what it means to call a mass shooter evil, he he poses this point that when we think about you can't legislate evil out of the human heart, that's a common talking point from folks like Wayne LaPierre and um, people on, on the right side of gun legislation. And he talks about the fact that principalities and powers enable people to enact evil in ways that they wouldn't without structures that enable them to do so. It's a really insightful read. It's very thoughtful, and I recommend you check it out, especially if you are not sure what you think about gun rights. But what really struck me is a response from another pastor and scholar named Fleming Rutledge, who said, commenting on the article, the underlying Esau McCullough's discussion is the biblical concept of the principalities and powers, which are not in themselves evil, but are are easily co-opted by the power of evil, Satan, the adversary. No Christian should speak of another as pure evil, taken over by evil, perhaps. And so, on the right side of gun legislation, there's this tendency to say that Like, mass shootings are a result of evil human hearts. And since we can't change evil human hearts, we can't change the reality of mass shootings. And this article, I recommend you read it. I recommend you don't email me to argue about it. Um, (laughs) But it's a Christian case for thinking about gun legislation based on the reality that there is an enemy behind every enemy. Paul captures this sentiment with the phrase, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities. Paul knew that behind every flesh and blood enemy was a deeper, truer enemy. And that the enemy you see is not evil to the the core. No one is pure evil. And so as we find ourselves engaging with real flesh and blood enemies, I think we ought to recognize them as enemies, acknowledge them as enemies, Acknowledge that their interests and their actions stand in opposition to the justice of God and the kingdom of God. But yet also recognize that they are not the ultimate subject of our battle. So how, how do you have that balance? How do you resist a human enemy without, without discarding of their dignity, value, and worth as, as image bearers of God? How do you face the fact that they're causing harm and resisting the kingdom of Jesus, yet also recognize that they have been harmed and that they're part of a much bigger system of evil? Well, here we can look to one of the most famous things that Jesus ever said. Love your enemies. Love is the mode of resistance that we are invited into as Christians. Love is the weapon that dismantles the enmity but restores the enemy. If no enemy is an enemy by nature, and all people are made in God's image and held together by the love of Christ, then by virtue of being human, everyone is deserving of love. Powers and systems and principalities set people against each other as enemies, and those relations shouldn't be ignored. Right? We can acknowledge them, we can tweet at them as enemies. <laughs> Don't get carried away, though. But hatred sees only an enemy in the other. So hatred's answer to the enemy, as one of my Divinity School professors, Luke Brotherton, always said, hatred will either kill them, coerce them, or cause them to flee. But love engages them creatively and makes something new together. Love doesn't bulldoze an enemy. Love enters the tension and creates something new. Here we find no moral examples from the Israelites in our passage. Although they are clear on who their enemy is, what their interests are, and what would serve the health of the city of God, instead of loving these enemies, they shut them out entirely. Jürgen Moltmann said, he's a German theologian, he said, We have been the enemies of our enemies long enough. In the discipleship of Jesus, we experience the liberating power of love, love that is quite literally disarming. The love which Jesus put in the place of retaliation is love of our enemy. When you have an enemy, resist the enemy. Resist the enemy not with retaliation or vengeance, but with the disarming force of love. And all along, we remember the enemy behind the enemy. I think no one in recent history is more famous for an ethic of resistance through love than Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who, um, during a sermon on loving your enemies, um, he once said, we hear a choir singing In Christ there is no east or west, in him no north or south, but one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide world. This is the only way, and our civilization must discover that. Individuals must discover that as they deal with other individuals. There is a little tree planted on a little hill, and on that tree hangs the most influential character that ever came into the world. But never feel that that tree is a meaningless drama that took place on the stages of history. Oh no, it's a telescope through which we look out into the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is an eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the only way. It is an eternal reminder to a generation depending on nuclear and atomic energy, a generation depending on physical violence, that love is the only creative, redemptive, transforming power in the universe. Today is Juneteenth, and it's a day on which we remember and celebrate the word of freedom, finally reaching black residents of Texas when the governor there finally recognized union law and liberated people and slaves in Texas. It's not quite the date of actual freedom. Because on the one hand, the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed two years earlier, and on the other hand, the actual experience of true freedom was still a long way off, as landowners and planters would continue manipulating laws to exploit the labor of black residents of Texas. So the celebration today that many people are partaking in is not of freedom per se, but of the word of freedom. Freedom for captives is the word of truth. Freedom is the birthright of the new creation born at Christ's resurrection, and anywhere around the world where freedom finds an enemy, it is shown by the gospel to be an absurdity, a dissonant note clashing against the freedom that rings out into history from the cross of Christ. And if any enemy of that word of freedom ought to be and any enemy of that word of freedom ought to be resisted. Not by the weapons of war, but by the same sacrificial love of Christ. And becoming a victim of human sin and exploitation and empire and evil, Christ joins every victim of hatred and exploitation. And by dying and being reborn by the power of God's love, Christ reveals that it is the creative force of love and not the destructive force of hate that will finally deal with enemies. And so now, as you go out into the world and try to deal with enemies, begin by recognizing your allegiance. There's this little detail in our text today. When the Israelites give a response to their enemies about why they are shutting them out of the temple project, they say, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. And I think that right there is kind of saying the quiet part out loud. The temple is for the Lord, but at least part of their allegiance is to King Cyrus. King Cyrus gave us this command, King Cyrus gave us this funding, King Cyrus wrote our charter or whatever, and that changes how they respond to these enemies. If your first and final allegiance is to God and God's kingdom, it transforms how you respond to human enemies. Misplaced allegiance is the first step in becoming an enemy yourself. Misplaced allegiance can turn us into something we don't recognize, subtly working against the kingdom of God that we profess to love. And so then, if your allegiance is to God and the people that God loves, then when you encounter an enemy, pray for God's strength to resist them, like really resist them, and resist them with love. We all pray with me. God of justice and peace, we know that there are real enemies to your justice and peace out there in the world. And we pray that we will have the wisdom to recognize them, the courage to speak out against them, and the thoughtfulness and prayer to recognize when we are becoming one. God, I pray that the gospel of freedom and love that rings out from the cross of Christ will hit our hearts in a powerful way this morning, and I pray that you will make us the enemies of our enemies no longer, and that you will call us into the restorative work of love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.